Hello folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Tuesday night, April 1st, 2024. April Fools! No, it isn't. It's 2014. It's not 10 years from now. <laughs> Fooled you. <laughs> so I'm here tonight, as always, in Boulder, Colorado, with Brett Walker, who's handling the tech. And it's a beautiful night here. The flowers are blooming. It's still light out. And uh, we are very happy to be with you. We have our own website, dailyevolver.com, but our home is on Integral Life, and that is really the preeminent virtual space in the Integral community, integrallife.com. And it's the home of Ken Wilber and his archives, and, you know, a really vibrant community and uh, an amazing array of uh, informational, theoretical, and cultural activity. So I encourage you to go there. All right. So tonight, before we get into our main story, just a couple preliminaries. One is we will be taking questions at the end of the call, as usual, or comments. So if you have one, please press one at that time. You can be thinking about it in the meantime. If you want to follow along, I know a lot of people on this call really are you know, I get comments and messages from people. And one of the things that is most gratifying to me is that people are finding these calls to be really useful uh, as a way of learning integral theory. So I encourage you, if you're interested in really following along at that level, to go to the reminder email that you got from Maestro uh, about this call. Probably the easiest is to search for Salzman, S-A-L-Z-M-A-N, my last name. And on that email near the bottom is a link that takes you to a couple charts. One is the altitudes of development, and this is the idea of cultural and individual consciousness development over time, all of human history, actually. And it also is a map of the quadrants. And the quadrants and the levels are the two really most important pieces of integral theory. So they're both there if you want to look at it. All right. Yeah, so uh, just for a, a quick story at the, the start, it'll just sort of get us into the main topic, which is about corporate personhood. Uh, how about that Obamacare uh, at 7.1 million regist uh, registrations? Uh, that was just an amazing thing. It was a surprise. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's looking good for Obamacare. Morning Joe this morning featured a poll by ABC and the Washington Post that showed that there's been a nine-point shift in favor of Obamacare, the, the Affordable Health Care Act, since November. So what's that? Four, five months? Now 49% of people support it and 48% of people oppose it. And these numbers aren't even based on the news today that they have hit and actually exceeded their goal of seven million. So everybody loves a winner as Liza Minnelli sang in Cabaret. So I think we'll even see a spike uh, after this for the next uh, spate of registrations. So I'd like to actually repeat the poll tonight for you folks. And I'm just gonna ask you the same question that the Washington Post and ABC News asked. And that is this, a very simple question. Overall, do you support or oppose the Affordable Care Healthcare Law? Press 1 if overall you support it. Press 2 if you oppose it. And press 3 if you don't know. But pick 1, 1 or 2 if you are moved one way or the other on it. So we'll get the results here in a minute from Brett. Press 1 if you overall you support it. Press 2 if overall you oppose it. So I must say it was, you know, good news for me. I mean, I'm a, I'm a supporter of Obama, as we all know. <laughs> I do a portion of the Daily Evolve, Evolver called Obama Apologia, because I do recognize in the guy a integral sensibility. And so it, you know, turns me on. Uh, people do resonate with people who are, you know, flying at the same altitude. And I recognize, a, you know, a higher consciousness on a good day from this guy. Uh, the same thing I recognize in myself, and it, it, it's really not doing anybody any good to be overly coy about that. I also enjoyed, although God knows I tried not to, 
the Fox News sputtering respin about the news this morning. Of course, Fox News being the traditionalist conservative media outlet, TV media outlet here in the States. And, you know, their response was everything from he's lying. You know, that's a good old standard. Uh, that's all timing and stagecraft. How, did, how is it that they knew today that it was 7.1 million where they've been so coy, really, uh, up until now, and that this uh, was just timing, stagecraft, and, you know, smoke and mirrors from the president? And they also said that why are all the Democrats, if, if Obamacare is so popular, why are all the Democrats in re-elections running away from it? And, you know, these are good points. Uh, the answer to the third one is why are Democrats in re-elections running away from it? Uh, because in midterms, which is the election coming up, uh, people vote against things rather than for things. They tend to be older, whiter, more conservative voters. And a lot of the people running are running in red states, which are conservative states to begin with. So those are good points. And the people, people run, I just got the results here. So actually, let me just, all right. Thank you, Brett. So 82% of you support the Health Care Act, 17% oppose, and only 1% don't know. I love that. At least everybody has an opinion on this call. And if you're in a, an opposition, uh, I'd be interested in hearing what you have to say again later in the call. So anyway, the point I wanted to make is that this is another example, this movement of the health care law, of the old Arabic saying that I love so much that says, dogs bark, but the caravan moves on. And this is really true of evolution in general. And we are you know, evolving into a culture that continues to create more predictable security for more and more of its members. That's just the nature of evolution, especially as we move into a new phase, which, as we've been talking about in the show, is probably moving into green in terms of uh, the government, in terms of the economy, where we're adjusting from the orange period that we had from Reagan to the stock market crash of Obama, essentially, in 2008, uh, where, you know, there was a, an increase in the uh, economy and, and there was a lot of dynamism and so forth, but it eventually came to a crash. And now we're moving into more of a collective uh, sensibility. And Obamacare is right on schedule for that. And of course, the millennials like it. And it's an example of, to me, of not only the inexorable movement of evolution in the culture, but also one of Obama's great strengths. It's that no drama Obama thing. He just basically gets things done in this way. Uh, it reminds me, especially seeing Fox News this morning, it reminds me of when Obama beat Mitt Romney back in uh, November a year ago and how surprised they were because they have an echo chamber. Uh, all first-tier memes do. They really listen to people who reify their opinions and listen to their own sets of facts and their own pollsters and their own experts. The danger of that, the danger of any monoperspectival system, the danger of really being identified with any first-tier system, and this is, you know, whether it's green or orange or amber or whatever it is, is that reality tends to come up and whack you in the head because reality is monoperspectival. Reality includes not only the people who are thinking like you, but other people as well. It reminds me of Obama versus Hillary back in 2008, where she was busy campaigning and being the inevitable nominee of the Democratic Party. And all the while, Obama was quietly pocketing delegates. And then one day we all woke up to the fact that she was checkmated and he was going to be the nominee. Uh, and even if Obamacare is, you know, even if we get a Republican president and both houses of Congress in the next election, it's going to be very difficult for Republicans to dismantle the key pillars of Obamacare, which is no pre-existing conditions uh, allowed for consideration for insurance. You can't be thrown off. Your portability, you can take it from job to job. Your kids are covered to age 26. The goal is to include more people. 
if the Republicans take over, they're going to have to keep these pillars because the pillars individually are extremely popular into the high 60s and 70s percent. So whether we call it Obamacare or whatever it is, uh, again, dogs bark, but the caravan moves on. We create a culture where more and more people are included. Uh, one of the, my favorite critiques of the news today was from Andrea Tentaros of The Five, which is a, a, a very popular show on Fox in the afternoon where they have five people who debate these things, four conservatives and one, one liberal. But it's, it's, it's fun. It's a good show. And she was saying that this exposes the real purpose of Obamacare, which is the redistribution of wealth and class warfare in America. And that's true. It, it, that is what Obamacare is doing. And it's appropriate. That's what government does. Uh, the private sector creates wealth and the public sector does its best to ensure that, you know, rules are followed and, you know, the results are fairly equitable. And tax policy and loopholes and regulations and favors and, you know, all of the legislation that passes favors one side over another all the time. I always love what Warren Buffett said, who's one of the richest men in America with 40, 50 billion dollars. He said, yes, we have class warfare in America and my class is winning. <laughs> so, you know, this is the nature of things. We move back and forth and forward. It's like, a it's like the pendulum of a clock, but the clock itself is moving. Yes, we go back and forth between, uh, you know, focus on individual freedom and, and government hands off. And then we move towards more collective action and let's make sure everybody's included and, and no people are left behind and that sort of thing. So a big day for Obama and Obamacare. We'll see where it goes from here. These, you know, this is not the end of the story by any means. All right. So let's look then at the main story. And that is, it's really along the same lines here. Uh, and that is the a topic that's really front and center in the culture wars, certainly in the U.S., and I imagine in other parts of the world, too. And let me just say that I know this calls a little American-centric tonight, but I'm assuming that I'm talking about principles that are at play in other countries. And, you know, if you'd like to share some of your experiences from other countries, I know we have a number of people on this call f uh, from outside of America. Please do. I'm happy to, to love to hear it out, actually. So, one of the questions is this idea of, when we get to the private sector, this idea of personhood and are corporations people. And one of the stories that is really front and center right now is a, a lawsuit that was brought by the company Hobby Lobby, which is a company that has these retail stores that, you know, for hobbyists and, you know, weavers and people who make things at home and so forth. And they're seeking an exemption in Obamacare from requirements that require them to use a certain kind of contraception. Plan B is the typical one, but it's a kind of contraception that would destroy a fertilized egg. Now, they're not opposing all contraception. This is just this particular type because it violates their religious principles. And the question is, can corporations and they have a certain legal standard of what we call legal, they are a legal person, that's in quotes. They're not actual people, we know that. But what does it mean? Can a corporation discriminate against people? This was a big issue during the civil rights era. Was it okay for a diner or a hotel to refuse service to a black person? And the answer, after a lot of consternation and a lot of you know, legislative fighting and so forth, and the assassination of John Kennedy and Martin Luther King, we came to the conclusion that no, people couldn't do that. There was an issue in Arizona last month where there was a movement, and this is a movement that has been taking place in other states as well, a movement from conservatives. These are people in the amber traditionalist stage of development that wanted to make it okay to uh, be able to discriminate against gay people. Uh, that is, if you have a bakery, you don't have to make a wedding cake for a gay couple. 
if you have, uh, if you're a musician or if you're a pastor, you don't have to officiate at a gay wedding. And it was passed by the legislature. It was went to the a conservative governor's desk, and she vetoed it. And when she did, that was pretty much the death knell for this sort of retrograde legislation that really seeks to, you know, undo a little bit of the amazing gains that gay people have made in the last 10, 15 years in America and really throughout the world, uh, you know, some parts of Africa excluded. The reason for that is because, you know, good old orange comes in and Orange, modernity, isn't as ideological as green post-modernity, as, as like a good, true good liberals, or as conservative amber people, true social conservatives. Orange can go either way. And this is often what throws elections and throws policy one way or the other in this country. And what they were seeing was that there was going to be a, a resistance from the business community that particularly the, what was really emblematic of the argument was that Arizona is scheduled to have the Super Bowl next year. And if they passed this law, having the Super Bowl would be in jeopardy and probably they'd lose it. This is where good old money comes in handy. People don't want to lose that kind of an opportunity. So maybe for not the best reasons in the world or not altruistic reasons, they're not really about gay people being happy or being left alone, but about money, uh, we move forward. And I'll take it. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll put that in the bank because that's progress. So that idea of religious freedom, let me just quickly make the case for Hobby Lobby. Do they have the right to deny this particular contraceptive to their employees? And let's just look from a traditionalist standpoint uh, from, about contraception, and, and particularly this kind of contraception that destroys a fertilized egg, an egg that uh, has really started the human uh, being going. For a traditionalist, the world is a magical place in a sense. The, the, the world this world is not my home. My home is the kingdom of God. It's hard for us who are modern and, and, and above to really be able to wrap our heads and hearts around a world where I am the child of God and my life is about pleasing God and earning eternal life and being obedient and doing what I'm told by Almighty God. And that having children is an act of God, that, that when I would get pregnant or my wife would get pregnant, this is, you know, a sacred act, the creation of life. It's not, uh, you know, an act that science can explain. And it is truly, you know, magical. And to ignore that or be forced to act against that is really deeply against my principles. And it would be a little bit, if we're, if we're trying to understand from a liberal perspective, and I know most of the people on this call are, you know, liberals, and, and I am as well, it would be a little bit like forcing a country, a company to provide gun training to all employees because, you know, guns are a public health issue and all people need to learn how to handle them and that sort of thing. And you can sort of feel into how uh, a corporation or a company might, might view this. I don't think ultimately that the uh, issue of corporate personhood is going to uh, expand into this idea of religious freedom. That was the argument that they used in Arizona against the, you know, actually in favor of these laws preventing people from being forced to uh, participate in gay weddings and so forth. And I think that uh, although people are predicting that Hobby Lobby will win in the Supreme Court, and we, we don't know. I mean, apparently from the opening questions, we have four liberals uh, against Hobby Lobby, four conservatives for Hobby Lobby. 
And of course, we have Justice Kennedy <laughs> ultimately making the decision. So we'll see what happens. They have to rule by June. But as we move forward, you know, this is one of the really important things about private enterprise in general, is this idea that we have a private space where we can think whatever we want, and we can, within reason, act however we want as people. Like, I can not like gays. I can not like blacks. But in my commercial life, in my public life, I have to follow certain rules, I think is a pretty well laid down principle of modernity that I hope will extend into this contraceptive uh, issue. I uh, saw a New Yorker cartoon that I really got a kick out of, and it's about this idea of corporate personhood. And it shows this man in a tie, you know, businessman, reading a bedtime book to his little son, who's all tucked in with his stuffed animals and, the, you know, the light's down and it's dark. And, and he's reading the story, and the story goes, and the corporation was very lonely because it felt so different from the other people. <laughs> so, you know, reading to his kid. So I was talking about this contention between the public sector, the government, and the private sector, and how, you know, as I said, it's front and center in the culture wars and how potent it is for people, and how people who are green liberals have more of a natural antipathy towards the corporate power, and the conservatives have more of a fear and antipathy towards government power. And I just want to do a quick little history of capitalism, if you will, and just see how it came online. Because, of course, for most of human history, there was no private sphere. You were in a tribe, and everybody knew everything you did, and everybody pretty much knew everything you thought, and that's how it was for most of human history. And as we moved into feudal systems and warlord systems, you had no freedom from the warlord. The warlord could come and take whatever he wanted. And this is true also as we move into, you know, more kingdoms and more nation states where we have kings and queens and feudal systems and so forth. But it was really about then in, in the Middle Ages where we developed things like guilds, which would be uh, groups of professionals like blacksmiths or barrel makers or wheel makers or weavers who would get contracts, basically, or charters from the king to operate and to control their various fields of, of endeavor. And this started in the 1300s. In the 1500s, we developed into what we call mercantilism. And this is an affiliation with the government. So you have sort of quasi-private groups of people who again charter with the king and create something like the first mercantile organization is, is considered to be the Medici Bank of Florence in the 1500s. And that developed into these big colonial companies such as the Dutch and the British East India companies that were really the engines of the exploitation of colonialism in Africa and really around the world. And these folks in the, you know, these East India companies, they did have shareholders. People, the, the, the company was owned by lots of people who put money into it. There was limited liability. This is really the beginning of this idea of a corporate entity that is somehow outside of just the, the range of the king. And they often fought like armies. They were, as I said, quasi-military and they would conquer regions and, and often fight with each other with arms. And so that took us through a couple hundred years. And then in the late 1700s, we really moved into our first thinking about a true free market or a true free sphere of existence where I am sovereign. I, the individual, am sovereign. And the king can't get me. The warlord can't get me. And in this case, instead of my company or my uh, you know, organization being contracted by the government, there's just a total sphere of private economic entities and activity that is free of government control. 
And this was, you know, brought into being, as I said, in the late 1700s, uh, Adam Smith, uh, the Wealth of Nations, Stuart Kidd of England, talking about this, really, this new entity, this corporation. And if we look at the U.S., uh, at the beginning of the U.S., because we, we had a very unique situation here, unlike Europe, which is where, you know, the Industrial Revolution was taking hold and of these, these, these big colonial companies were centered. Uh, the United States, there was really not a lot of law as we, you know, moved west and conquered the indigenous people of this North American continent. And so we see that in the beginning of the United States for the first hundred years, the, most of the 1800s and even into 1900s, the public sector was very small. At 1900, the gross domestic product spent by the U.S. government was 7%. And 93% was private. And of course, this was the era of the robber barons and the, you know, the melons and the the big oil, J.P. Morgan, and all those guys who built these, you know, huge companies. And then in World War I, there was, of course, big government spending on the war, and government percentage of GDP gusted up to 30%. It gusted back down in the 20s. And then in the Depression and during World War II, it went up to 50% of the gross domestic product was government. And after each war, the baseline never really went back down as far as it did. And now we've had, and, and this has been true, it's been growing since uh, after the World War II, uh, and after settling down after World War II, rather. Uh, it's been growing to, since the 80s, the government share of gross domestic product in the United States has hovered somewhere around 40%. And so we have these two big spheres of really activity, this public sector and we have this private sector. And during the 20th century, a lot of what the public sector was doing was regulating monopolies, breaking up these big trusts, and bringing in regulation to essentially civilize business. Uh, it eliminated, of course, slavery in the 1800s, but also child labor in the beginning of the, of, the, of the 20th century, any kind of indentured servitude, unsafe conditions, you know, OSHA, the Occupational Safety Act, all of this was brought on in the, you know, the middle, late part of the 20th century. Until finally, in the 60s, we outlawed discrimination in hiring uh, for both blacks, you know, racial minorities, and also uh, sex discrimination. And that was really the project of the 20th century. And this is how that sort of contention between the public and private sphere really bore fruit because we had a more civilized. And the idea is let's regulate and civilize this, this creative beast called private enterprise without completely strangling it or suffocating it or putting it under a lid. So we really want both things happening at the same time. Now, of course, that was the project in the West. In the East, in China and the Soviet Union particularly, the big experiment was just continuing to create a public sphere where we had planned and centralized economies, no private enterprise, no private ownership. And of course, that didn't work. We actually did, it turns out that we did need the contention between the public and private um, spheres. And so now we've had, in the last 20 years, particularly in the last, uh, well, I'm thinking the last 20 years of the, of the 20th century, uh, a privatization of a lot of these planned economies and really a creation of a private sphere, however imperfect they are in both, if we're looking at China and, and Russia, uh, these are very, very primitive uh, structures uh, by Western standards in the sense that, you know, they didn't really f duke it out for a hundred years between, you know, the, the public and private sector. So they're really just sort of beginning. And so we have a lot of corruption. That's what they're fighting, particularly in China. <laughs> Remains to be seen what's going on in Russia. Uh, but that's the next move, of course, is to regulate 
and bring the dynamism of private ownership to bear to make the lives better for everybody in the culture. So again, we need the polarity between the public and private spheres of life. And there's a natural health to this. This polarity is sort of the key engine of evolution. We see at every stage of evolution, things move forward through a, a certain contention between two polar forces. And in this case, it's public, the collective, versus private, the agentic or the individual. And these are really two big dimensions of life. If you look at the quadrant diagram, this is the difference between the left-hand quadrants and the right-hand quadrants. And from an integral perspective, we want to be very clear that these are two irreducible dimensions of reality, that one cannot colonize the other, that both have to be online, even though they're often, uh, you know, at odds. And there's actually a pattern that we see as we move forward. This was first identified by Hegel, the philosopher, who theorized that things move forward by first having a thesis, then an antithesis, and then a synthesis. So the thesis is private enterprise. The antithesis is public control. And by duking it out, we have a new synthesis that takes us ever further forward. So we want that. And as integralists, we don't want one or the other side to win. We want both sides to be healthy. We want, we want both sides to be worthy. And we want it to be a good struggle because that's how we actually move things forward. It's often defined as the difference between or the contention between security and freedom. The role of the public sphere is, first and foremost, safety and security. That's the first job of government, to protect the people. So we have a police force, we have armies. Now, of course, police and armies are nothing new in human history. Cultures have always had them. But pre-modern societies, in pre-modern societies, the, the police and, and armies are often used to keep the people in line so that the elites are safe to do their work. There's probably, you know, it's probably evolutionarily appropriate and, and potent at that stage of development. But, and we see that, you know, in pre-modern pre cultures now. It's one of the issues that we see as we look at the turmoil around the world and all of these springs, Venezuela and Turkey and Middle East and even Russia and so forth, that modern people are rising up against these pre-modern governments that continue to operate as if the spoils of the economy are to be divvied up by the people who are in the circle and uh, to hell with the people who are outside of the circle. So moving into modernity means that we don't just want law and order. And, you know, properly executed oppression actually provides a certain kind of order, and, and people will opt for it. Uh, they'll take a sort of an oppressive, oppressive autocratic order over total chaos. But now, after, you know, that's sort of handled and that's consolidated, then we don't just want law and order, we, we don't just want safety from immediate harm, but we want longer-term security. So we begin the project of building a safety net uh, so that we create social security, so that you know, if we all get together and, and agree that we're all going to pool our resources and take care of our old parents, then we don't have to stay home and live with them. We don't have to live next door. We can leave home. This is, you know, a modern imperative. I want to go where I want to go. I want to live the life I want to live. I don't want to be stuck in the farm. I don't want to be stuck with the, the family. This is a thing that really comes online in modernity. And so we create uh, the structures that make it so you can only be so poor that we actually don't want people selling apples on the street corner, uh, that we don't want old people living, particularly living in poverty, that security, that, that, that job of the public sector is maintained. But we also want liberty, and we also want freedom. We also want to fully participate in this private sphere. 
as I said, this is the sphere where the actual creation of wealth happens, and we want to keep that healthy as possible. As I mentioned, liberals have a natural sort of support of government and an antipathy towards business. It, uh, you know, if you, if you talk to people who are really, you know, hardened on the left-hand spectrum of the political spectrum, uh, you know, they're all up in arms about Citizens United, uh, which is a, a Supreme Court ruling that uh, said that indeed corporations are people in the sense that they can spend as much money as they want in uh, elections. And we have the Koch brothers and we have Monsanto and we have these sort of bogeymen of the left. Uh, I saw uh, <laughs> a movie that uh, in the last, I guess, over the weekend, I guess, The Wolf of Wall Street, that just showed the hopeless corruption in all quadrants of the Wall Street people. And I guess it was the 90s. Uh, you know, they were engaging in full-on public orgies in the cubicles. They were cheering as the boss scammed innocent middle-class people on the phone, on the speakerphone. I found it to be pretty shallow, honestly, and not even a great critique. I and mean, there's, there's a great critique to be made for the voracious ignorance of this money-over-everything philosophy that can often infect these hardened orange structures, as particularly like we see in Wall Street. And I pr much prefer the movie Glengarry Glen Ross, which is an even more savage takedown of this sort of greed in business. But, you know, that's another, that's another issue. It's interesting, though, because, you know, why do liberals trust government when conservatives have antibodies to government and are more friendly to business? And if we look developmentally, we see that liberals trust government because they actually have gone through the stage of consciousness development where they see that government is not necessarily a force of oppression, which it was for most of human history. If you go pre-modern, any kingdom or you know, government or warlord or whatever feudal structure was in place was something that the masses of people were afraid of and for good reason. But it's, it's almost like I, I think of what it is to, to go to uh, a country like India, for instance, or some of these less developed countries where people just don't know how to stay in their lane. Uh, when they're driving, <laughs> you know, you just have people sort of beeping their horn and, you know, getting a little advantage to the left or a little advantage to the right and you're moving through the traffic jam. And, and you do that if you're standing in line to go to a theater. I mean, people don't stand in line, for heaven's sakes. And here in the West and in more developed countries, we actually learn that. That's something that comes online as we uh, develop, as we learn to take our turn and stand in line. It's a certain civilizing factor. And once that happens, we just sort of trust it. And that's true of liberals. And it's not so true if you look even at the stages of development. The amber stage of development, the social conservatives, the people who have a natural fear and hatred even of government, they're actually psychically living closer to the structures of development, the pre-modern structures where government was a means of oppression. So... Both of those things are in the system, and they're both duking it out. And this is the nature of things. And it's not that the conservatives, uh, who you know, have a lot of fears uh, about government, are, are wrong by any means. We see just even recently the story about Toyota and GM hiding these defects in their cars. I mean, this is serious stuff where hundreds of people died. And they knew about it. And this is just coming out. And these are companies like Toyota and General Motors. You know, I'm, I'm surprised that that actually took place. And they're getting creamed. They're getting hammered. I mean, uh, uh, Toyota got a $1.2 billion fine from the U.S. government. I think the average fine for this kind of violation in the past has been 50 or $60 million. This is $1.2 billion. This will hurt Toyota.
And it's meant to. And Eric Holder himself, the attorney general, came out and did a speech on this, uh, on, on, their, on their findings and on the, you know, the, the, basically the penalty that Toyota was going to have and uh, talked about how shameful it was, uh, how Toyota acted. And of course, there's stories all over the media, particularly the business media, about the reverberations of this fine for to Toyota and how every company now is all focused on getting out the bad news. And or at least they're more focused. There's, there's less likely to keep it hidden because we see that the government really can come in and exact a toll. And it's going to be really interesting to see this new woman CEO of General Motors, this Mary Barrow, who has been a lifelong employee of, of General Motors. And uh, she seems to be getting very, very much out in front of this story. It's a bad story for, for GM, and it, it will hurt them. So um, we'll see. I mean, this is the bigger critique or the biggest, the bigger fear from traditionalists or the amber uh, altitude about government is that eventually the masses of people, if we have a democracy where everybody gets a vote, the have nots, the masses will just continue to vote themselves in benefits until the whole system, well, as Anne, Ayn Rand said, shrugs the whole system, all the people who are actually holding the world together, these great atlases, atlas shrugged, uh, will say, to hell with it. You people have at it and we're going to go to Galt's Gulch and we're going to leave you to your devices and you're all going to suffer and uh, wish, we, we, wish we came back. So this is the mentality of that structure of development. So what we're looking for from an integral perspective is, well, essentially, we want to fear both <laughs> big business and government, you know, appropriately. We want to see that they both can get out of hand and that we actually, as I said, we want them to be in a healthy contention with each other. And the move forward, as I said, you know, we, you move from thesis to antithesis to synthesis. The big move into synthesis is not about coming up with some sort of mushy middle where we clip the wings of both the government and the private sector, uh, or we come up with you know, some homogenization. It's about moving forward into new structures where each side basically moves into synthesis by taking on the best qualities of the other side. And this is, again, this is the sort of basic engine of evolution. And in the business world, we're seeing this, we're seeing it happening in both the public and the private sector. Uh, let me just start with the, the private sector first. One of the most interesting new movements in the business world is a movement called Conscious Capitalism, which was developed by John Mackey. He's the founder and president of Whole Foods, the grocery stores, which is an $11 billion company. He's also started the Whole Planet Foundation, uh, which is a, uh, a foundation that disperses money throughout the world for microloans, uh, the local producer loans for small farmers, the Global Animal Partnership for more humane treatment of animals, and he's been CEO of the year in you know, all sorts of awards from all sorts of people and is truly a, a great innovator in business. And he talks about conscious capitalism as really essentially, although he doesn't say it in so many words, as bringing on the best of what is typically charged to the public sector, which is taking care of the people. And as he put it in an article that he wrote for the Harvard Business Review. He's talking again about conscious capitalism. I'm gonna read a couple paragraphs. He said, the word conscious has many con connotations for people. We define it as being mindful and awake, seeing reality as it is rather than how we wish it to be, recognizing and being accountable for all the consequences of our actions, having a better sense of what is right and what is wrong, Rejecting violence as a way to so solve problems and being in harmony with nature. 
Now, these are very, very much green values. This is a move forward from the typical values of the private sector that are orange values, which says that the business of business is to create a profit for the shareholders. This is a whole new paradigm here. And yet, he's not anti-capitalist, as he says. As for capitalism, consider what has happened in just the past 200 years, a time when capitalism really took root as an idea in so many societies. After tens of millennia, in which 85 to 90% of human beings lived on less than a dollar a day in today's terms, worldwide per capita incomes have increased nearly 15-fold. This is worldwide, not just in the West. 15-fold in constant dollars. Today, about 16% of the world's population lives on less than a dollar a day, only 16%. Adjusting for quality and affordability, it's estimated that the average American is 100 times better off materially today than 200 years ago. Average life expectancy has climbed from about 30 to over 67 years in that same time span. And he goes on in his last paragraph, he says, this is astounding progress, not just for the fortunate few, but for most of humanity. We therefore hold these truths to be self-evident. I love this. Business is good because it creates value. Business is ethical because it is based on voluntary exchange. It is noble because it can elevate our existence. And it is heroic because it lifts people out of poverty and creates prosperity. Free enterprise capitalism is the most powerful system for social cooperation and human progress that has ever been conceived. It is one of the most compelling ideas we humans have ever had, but we can aspire to even more. And then he lays out the four principles of conscious leadership. Number one being that the company or corporation has to have a higher purpose than just profit or else it's just not going to work. People have to be engaged in their own, you know, left-hand quadrants, basically, their own interiors, so that, you know, more of them comes online. It can't just be about the drudgery of making money. Number two, conscious leadership. And conscious leadership, as defined by Mackey and the conscious uh, capitalism uh, movement, is this idea of servant leadership where the role of the leader is to actually be a servant to the team that he or she is leading. And that your job as the leader is to focus things and make sure the right people are doing the right thing and clear the way and cut the underbrush and make sure that there's room for movement and that you are actually in the role of serving the people that you are leading. The third, the first being again, higher purpose, second conscious leadership, the third is the idea of a stakeholder orientation and the recognition that without employees, customers, suppliers, supportive communities, and a life-sustaining ecosystem, there is no business. Conscious business is a win-win-win proposition, which includes a healthy return to all shareholders. And all shareholders, again, are employees, customers, suppliers, funders, uh, everybody and including the environment itself. And then the fourth principle of this conscious leadership is the idea of a conscious culture that focuses on we, not me. And again, this is so green to move into this idea of the focus on the we, not me. And he says, a conscious culture fosters love and care and builds trust between a company's team members and its other stakeholders. Conscious culture is an energizing and unifying force that truly brings a conscious business to life. And, you know, the, the bottom line is that there are multiple bottom lines, of course. But looking in the aggregate, what really is powerful about this new synthesis, really, this idea of a private enterprise that is not directed or owned by the government in any way, shape, or form, still has these bigger goals of doing good in the world. Uh, these companies win in the marketplace. They beat their competitors who are just focused on you know, results and, and, and profit and so forth. And you can feel it. They have identified dozens of companies that are operating from these conscious business 
with these conscious business principles. One is Whole Foods, of course. One is Costco. Another is Google, Patagonia, Trader Joe's, Starbucks, Southwest Airlines, and there are others. But if you think about these companies, there is an X factor. I mean, uh, here I am in Boulder, and we have we're one of the first communities that really got into natural foods and so forth. And there are a number of natural food grocery stores in Boulder, but none of them have that X factor that is there when you walk into a Whole Foods. It's just that the place has a louche. <laughs> it has a sense of place and a sense of presence. And there's a lot happening. There's a good energy. The people are working hard. They're customer focused. Everything is clean. It is very, very different than going into even a company like Alfalfa's, which is the original natural food company in Boulder that the, you know, the owners brought back. I know them. I actually I know John Mackey, too. He, I'm on a board with him. And it's just very, very interesting how these great companies push these values really through the whole system so that the customer feels them so palpably. So that's one of the ways that we move into synthesis. Another way is for government to take on more principles of, uh, that, that so energize the private sector. And we see that happening too with this big move, uh, it was one example, towards charter schools and really reconstructing education in the United States. So it's not just these big centrally organized public schools where everybody's sort of taught the same thing, but schools can contract with the government and they have to have very stringent regulations about what they're teaching and they have to be getting results and so forth. But provided they fulfill the charter, then they are free to do it their way and free to do it with uh, you know, strategies and educational techniques and parents can choose and they can leave one and go to another and so forth. And it brings an aspect of competition and accountability to a moribund school system that I think is, I'm not the only liberal to have switched sides in this public school versus charter school debate. And I'm excited to see how these, you know, new structures that really bring the best of both forward continue to come online. All right, so <laughs> I talked a lot. So let's turn our attention to, um, to you and, you know, any comments you have or questions, uh, uh, anything at all. And I think we can start, Brett, with uh, we have a question. You know, we have this uh, new feature on dailyevolver.com. Uh, my blog, which is called SpeakPipe. It's right there when you go there. You'll see it. It's down in the right-hand corner. And you can press a button, and you can leave me a vocal question or a verbal question, and I can respond to it and play them and, on, on the call and so forth. So we got a good question this week uh, from Nancy. And Brett, would you play it? Hi, Jeff. This is Nancy from Richmond, Virginia. In your last Daily Evolver, you, uh, had, uh, it was a segment where you talked about how individualism and collectivism tends to go back and forth in stages of cultural development, maybe even stages of individual development, but you were talking more about cultural development, uh, back and forth, back and forth between collectivism, individualism being the focus. And that really interests me. Um, I, I'm not an integral expert. I would say I'm, um, I'm middling, maybe a five from one to ten on scale of integral um, understanding and reading. And I would I would really enjoy your expanding on that if it seems appropriate in another um in, in, in another daily evolver, which I love, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Nancy. Yeah, that's, it's really an interesting uh, quality of, of, of development. We see it in, in terms of our personal development as we grow up from infants to adulthood. And we see it in terms of cultural development as we grow up from, you know, indigenous to archaic people to, you know, modern and postmodern and integral people. 
that if you look at the stages, the altitudes of development on the chart that I talked to you about, the opening structure, which we call infrared or archaic, the real growth there, what happens is that people wake up and realize I am that I am something different than my environment. I am something different than you. And this is really the first emergence of agency, of individual individuality in the human condition. And then we move into a tribal structure that actually says we are. My tribe, I mean, my, my identity and my ego even essentially is very much melded with the ego of the tribe. So it's a collective. And then, after that is consolidated in, in, in history, we move into the next stage, which is red, which says that I am powerful. I can actually break out of the tribal structures, of the, 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 the laws of the elders and the spirits and the chief, and I can go my own way and make it. And this ushers in a whole new stage of development, the, the, where the battle cry is, I am powerful. Then we have the amber structure, which says we are powerful. And we consolidate that power around you know, our God, our nation. This is now far more complex structure. This is the beginning of what we now consider to be traditional stage of development, the amber stage of development. We are powerful. And then the next stage is orange, which where the realization is this living in my religious community and these conservative conformist principles is getting tiresome. I got everything they have to give. And now I want to step out again. And I want to be somebody. And so the battle cry of Orange is, I am somebody. And I always remember Jesse Jackson doing these call and response rallies with young black men back, I believe, in the 90s when he was running for president, where he would shout, I am somebody, and they would shout it back. And these are people who are, you know, really feeling their way into from traditional to orange structures. And then green has the realization that we are together somebody. We are all somebody. We are all one. And this is the great realization collective, again, on the collective side of the street, that green has. And then we move into the integral stages of development. And the first one is a realization that, you know, this is the realization as we move into integral, it's the realization of evolution itself, not only evolution in terms of uh, the culture, but my own individual ev evolution. And I realize that I am a product of 13.8 billion years of evolution, that I am an expression of life itself, that I am a movement of the cosmos, and so is everybody else for that matter. And that's more of an, again, an individual realization, and I want to feel my powers in this new sense, in this new realization where I'm not only living my life, but I'm being lived by something that is bigger and more loving and more intelligent than I am, this the system at large. And that's very exciting from a you know, freedom to express uh, point of view. And then we move into turquoise, which is the more collective realization that we, we are all an expression of this evolutionary movement, of emergence itself. We'll see how those unfold because these are theoretical. There are some people who are gusting or spiking into these levels. We work on it intentionally as integral practitioners. But that's a little bit of a look at how we move. And we can, again, see it in our own life, you know, as we become more interested in being part of the group. And then after we get that, we want to break out and be an individual and so forth. And that's just the tick-tock, the pendulum swinging as, again, the whole clock moves. So if you have a question or comment, uh, please press one. I think I should have told you that before, but I'm sorry. We'll have time if people want to have a comment or question, press one and we'll hear you out. I think everyone is perfect, complete and whole tonight, Jeff. <laughs> well, good. Me too. All right, folks. Well, that's a look at the corporate personhood 
uh, issues that we're having and hopefully give you a little context from which to think about it. And again, the integral view is always to see what's best about every perspective and to allow what's best from every perspective to be part of a new perspective that actually is able to harmonize and metabolize these polarities into a new synthesis that brings on the best and the most intelligent and most loving uh, of, of all of the previous structures so that we create a better world. And that's what we do Tuesday nights on the Daily Evolver. I'm going to take next week off because we have the fourth turning conference. This is a production of Integral Life. Uh, and this is based on Ken Wilber's new book on Integral Buddhism, The Emergence of the Fourth Turning which is an evolutionary view being brought to Buddhism. And we're having a big conference here in Boulder starting later this week and through the weekend. So I won't be here next week, but I will be back on the 15th. And we will see you then, Tuesday night, April 15th. Take care, folks. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.